0: Welcome to Animal Health Insights. This podcast was created to connect producers, veterinarians, and animal owners, and to introduce you to the people and the organizations who are working to support animal health in Canada. Our podcast is developed with the support of the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System, Through these podcasts, CAS aims to engage veterinarians, producers, and the public in discussions around animal health and infectious disease as part of work to strengthen animal health surveillance through knowledge, awareness, and data sharing. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Todd. I'm also a veterinarian. Let's get started. The recent pandemic has really highlighted the potential risks associated with zoonotic diseases. These are diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans. Since everyone has pretty much had it up to here with coronavirus, today we're going to start by talking about some other zoonotic diseases, and how veterinarians and human medical doctors may differ when they discuss these with their clients. I think we're going to uncover some interesting information here. I'm pleased to have two experts with me today, from the realms of veterinary medicine and human medicine, to provide some insights. Dr. Jane Parmley, who is a veterinarian, an epidemiologist, and an associate professor of One Health in the Department of Population Medicine at the Ontario Veterinary College, University of Guelph, and Dr. Martha Fulford, a medical doctor and a specialist and professor in infectious diseases from McMaster University. Dr. Fulford has a special interest in zoonotic diseases and in travel related infections, and she is chief of medicine for the McMaster University Medical Center site. Also, she is the medical or clinical director of the McMaster Travel Clinic and of the Boros Clinic. Dr. Parmley has worked as a veterinary epidemiologist in government, non-governmental, as well as university-based organizations, where she has investigated a variety of health problems, such as antimicrobial resistance and emerging zoonotic diseases. As both of you are living extremely busy lives right now, I'd firstly like to extend my thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Welcome to Animal Health Insights. To start things off, Dr. Fulford, could you please provide a definition around the term zoonosis for our listeners? Of course. A zoonosis is an infection that
1: we uh, think of as having been transmitted from an animal to a human. This may be from an animal that's actually sick, and the infection that's made the animal sick has jumped to the human, but that's not always the case. It may be that it's a germ that is part of the normal microbiome of the animal, but when it enters one of us, a human, we actually do get quite sick from it. There are some infections that I might see in a human that will always have had an animal source, for example, something like brucellosis, but there are others that uh, may have actually originated an animal it gets to human and then it may then transmit human to human. And these are usually the, um, the bacteria that can cause uh, uh, gastroenteritis, things like Salmonella or Campylobacter. There is a, something about zoonosis that I've always found very interesting, and this goes back to the history of infections. There are some infections that we think of as entirely human now, but actually originated in animals. One of the more recent and obvious examples is, is HIV. This is a virus that we think originated in simians, uh, the chimpanzee for HIV-1 and the sooty mangabe for HIV-2. But another uh, example that goes a bit further back is measles, something that is an exclusively human disease now. But historically, it's actually thought to have evolved from rinderpest, which is a virus that uh, originally affected uh animals such as cattle or buffalo and some of the other even-toed ungulates. Rinderpest, interesting, has actually been officially eradicated from, from the world. It was de- declared eradicated in 2011. But measles is still here, uh, causing a lot of disease and morbidity and mortality in humans. So in other words, a zoonosis, which is an animal-to-human infection, might be a one-off illness in one person. It could set off a pandemic, such as HIV, COVID or what we previously did with Ebola, or it might, as happened with measles, evolve and become a circulating human pathogen uh, with uh, the memory of it having been a zoonosis long since forgotten.
0: So would we use the same term then if we're discussing a disease that moves from humans to animals?
1: No, actually, we, we tend to use the word anthroponosis uh, when when uh, an infection jumps from a human to an animal, so it's kind of the opposite of a zoonosis. The best example I know of of that is actually herpes simplex virus. It's the cause of cold sores in in humans. But if a person with a cold sore kisses uh, a pet bunny, for example, the rabbit could actually get a very severe uh, viral encephalitis and die.
0: So just what is it that allows a certain disease to move from an animal to a human or vice versa? It's a very good question. I don't think there's any one specific thing, but the, the
1: single most important issue is obviously that we share the environment. There are examples when humans move into previously unoccupied lands or ecosystems and we're suddenly exposed to uh, new pathogens, such as occurred with Ebola in West Africa or in Central Africa. New infections like COVID, of course, which is currently circulating the world, may be the result of humans cramming all sorts of different animals together in very crowded, stressful conditions, such as the wet markets in China or other areas of Southeast Asia. This is a an ideal setup for different viruses or bacteria to become in, in contact with each other and possibly mutate, and clearly a very easy way for such a pathogen to jump to a human. But other, probably more, more Standard examples of how a zoonosis jumps from an animal to a human uh, would be direct contact with the animal or with the fluids of the animal, and that could happen perhaps because you're looking after a sick animal and it either has diarrhea or it's sick to a stomach. Could be because the animal's bitten or scratched a person, there's obviously contact that way with saliva. But it could just be from petting the animal, if there's a bit of contamination on the fur, our hands get contaminated and might be transmitted to us. There's indirect contact, which is more from the sharing of the environment where we might touch uh, objects or surfaces that an animal has inadvertently contaminated. It could be on, in a barn or a stall. It might be a bird cage, a hamster cage, a chicken coop. It could be plants or soil where an animal might have relieved itself. And it could even just be from the food and water dishes for our pets uh, that might have been contaminated. We have, obviously, risk of exposure from food or water. Food might be undercooked meat, um, raw or undercooked eggs, could be fruits or vegetables contaminated in the fields. And then water, it's usually if water sources, either wells or, or groundwater have been contaminated almost always from the feces of an infected animal. In Canada, a really good example, and you know, unfortunate example was, was the Walkerton outbreak with the E. at the 157H7. And finally, probably the last way is might go from an animal. To a human is actually is transmitted by a vector, and are usually insects such as a tick, a mosquito, a flea, or a louse. And examples are things like Lyme disease, tularemia, plague, uh, which can be transmitted by fleas. Yellow fever, which is normally something that we see in, in simians, but can easily be transmitted to humans via a mosquito.
0: So Dr. Parmley, perhaps you could then explain the concept of One Health for us, and why zoonotic
2: diseases are a big part of this concept? Sure. There are several different definitions of One Health, but for the most part, they share common core elements. To me, One Health can be both a concept and an approach. As an approach, One Health represents or reflects a a collaborative effort of many disciplines, working together at many different levels, locally, nationally, globally, and in many different ways, Ultimately, to attain the best possible health for humans, animals, plants, and the environment. As a concept, One Health recognizes the many direct and indirect interconnections between human health, animal health, plant health, and the health of the environments that support us all. Historically, One Health has really focused on the interconnections between humans, animals, and the environment. But as the field evolves, these traditional pillars have been expanded on and the biggest change recently is the addition of plant health to that definition. There are many areas or topics sort of one health problems uh, that emerge from these interconnections and a broad holistic view is necessary to understand the entire problem and to find effective solutions. One of the most commonly listed One Health problems is zoonotic disease, and as Dr. Fulford described, these viruses, bacteria, or other microorganisms can move between animals and people. So the idea that animal health can affect human health is perhaps more straightforward for zoonotic diseases than it is for some of our other messy One Health challenges. Now, there is
0: an aspect of One Health that I personally find a little bit trickier to wrap my mind around, and that's the environmental connection. I know you have a really strong understanding of this. Could you explain how this ties into One Health?
2: Yes, I think many of us find the environment to be the trickier pillar to define and include in our One Health work. If we take the example of zoonotic diseases, whether or not a virus or a bacteria can pass from an animal to a human depends on the characteristics of that specific zoonotic disease agent and on the nature of the connections between animals and people. How we interact with animals depends on our environment. In One Health, most of the environmental emphasis has been placed on the natural environment, but more and more, we are also recognizing the importance of built environments, For example, how cities are designed can affect how people may come into contact with animals. And we're also beginning to better recognize those environments that are more socially constructed, things like the political, financial, cultural, or social environments. These socially constructed environments affect the type of work that we do. For example, a farmer would have very different interactions with animals than an office worker, or the likelihood that we have other health conditions, such as diabetes or heart disease, that may make us more likely to be infected or less able to fight off an infection. Basically, for me, the environment represents the many different places and conditions that can affect how animals and humans come into contact with each other.
0: So it seems like there is a bit of a shift now in veterinary and medical perspectives to really begin connecting the two medicines to provide medical treatment that considers this bigger one health picture. I feel like veterinarians are pretty comfortable considering some human health aspects or zoonotic diseases when when treating their patients. Is this accurate Dr. Parmley or do you feel there might be some room for improvement here?
2: I I do think it's accurate and I think there's room for improvement. I think veterinarians are aware of of some of the risks that their sick patients may present because they may be at risk of of being infected with those agents as well. So if we're thinking about zoonotic disease, veterinarians I do think are quite aware of some of those threats. But I do think there is room for improvement for a lot of maybe the other factors affecting health. So things like mental health and well-being. I think there's always room for improvement there. For some connections between animal welfare Uh, and abuse and and human welfare and abuse, I think we can probably do better at increasing awareness in some of those areas as well. So I, I think veterinarians actually are well positioned to think about the zoonotic risk in the patients from the patients that they see. I do absolutely feel though that there's room for improvement in terms of how veterinarians incorporate the One Health approach when treating individual patients or herds. And I think that struggle with this in the same way that doctors do, that there's a lot to consider in in a One Health approach, not only because of the direct threat maybe zoonotic disease poses, but all of those determinants that affect the health of their patients, the health of the animal owners, and other considerations on a farm or even within a household. And so it's about thinking of that big picture, what caused that animal to be sick, what drew that that owner to bring the animal in? And thinking about that big system behind that ultimate health challenge is difficult. And it's particularly difficult if you are short on time and don't have all the answers right in front of you.
0: How do human medical doctors include a One Health approach when they're treating their individual patients, perhaps for a zoonotic disease, Dr. Fulford? Are they considering the pets or the farm animals that a patient may be exposed to? I'm probably
1: in some ways not the best representative for answering this, given that I'm an infectious disease specialist and I have a particular interest in zoonoses. I always ask about exposures, and I'm I'm very aware of this and a very strong advocate, actually, of of the One Health concept. I think it's critically important. But sadly, I actually don't think that most medical doctors are as aware of One Health as they could be. And, and in fact, I'm rather sad to report that it may be that some of them aren't even aware of the whole concept of One Health. It would not be surprising for me to be referred a patient with what uh, could very clearly have been a zoonosis, and the question of animal contact hasn't even been asked. So from the medical physician's side, I actually think we have a long way to go in incorporating One Health into the care that we provide our patients.
0: So this leads into my mini uh, experiment for this episode. I thought it might be fun and interesting to ask some veterinarians and some medical doctors which zoonotic diseases they speak about regularly with their clients. This was really just an informal survey of some veterinarians and medical doctors in general practice, but the veterinarians that I spoke to do work in both large animal and in small animal practice. So here we go. Here is what the vet said.
1: Some zoonotic diseases I find myself discussing with clients are salmonella, E. coli,
2: leptospirosis, rabies,
1: toxoplasmosis,
2: roundworms,
1: ORF, Q fever, ringworm, listeriosis, cryptosporidium.
0: And now, this is what the human medical doctors said. Some zoonotic diseases that I
2: commonly talk to my patients about are ringworm, pasteurellosis, Lyme disease, giardiasis, Zika virus,
0: cryptospiridosis,
2: SARS and COVID-19,
0: toxoplasmosis, campylobacteriosis,
2: West Nile virus,
0: influenza A,
2: and salmonella and E.
0: coli. So there were some similarities in those lists and some differences too. I did find it interesting. The veterinarians, we certainly mentioned parasitic diseases quite frequently, as well as a number of bacterial infections. And the human physicians did mention more vector-borne diseases, as well as more viral infections. The vector-borne diseases That's an area that is particularly interesting for a One Health medical approach. Dr. Fulford, were there any surprises in either of these lists for you? I think my colleagues uh,
1: were able to come up with a fairly extensive list of possible zoonoses. I was surprised at the number of vector-borne diseases mentioned, and I was also surprised at the number of viral diseases that may have had a zoonotic source but have now jumped to humans and are being effectively transmitted person to person. These are mainly the respiratory viruses such as influenza and the coronaviruses. Uh, Once they have jumped into the human population, uh, the zoonotic source becomes a lot less relevant, uh, unlike other infections which do require ongoing or recurrent exposure to animals. With regards to some of the bacterial infections, I... Do think it's important that as physicians that we recognize that many of the uh, animals that may have uh, given us the infection, such as things like salmonella or E. coli, are companion animals. Uh, I mention this specifically because it's very common that when I ask about animal contact, I'll be uh, assured there has been no animal contact. But when I ask if they have a dog or a cat or another pet, The answer is yes, but somehow our companion animals are somehow not considered as being animal contact.
0: And how about you, Dr. Parmley? Anything surprising in either of those lists?
2: I think there are some in the list from veterinarians that would be more likely representative of small animal practice and others that would be more representative of large animal practice simply by, because of the different diseases those animals carry. But no, I, I, I think those were the ones that I would have thought of had you, had you asked me, in terms of a practicing veterinarian, some of the ones that would come up there.
0: So I think some of the differences in these lists highlight, perhaps, that veterinarians can be pretty important when it comes to discussing some public health issues or some zoonotic diseases, although I might be a little bit biased here. Uh do you think this is recognized currently as part of human medicine, Dr. Fulford?
1: I completely agree that um veterinaries are extremely important uh, in terms of highlighting some public health issues, and I think we could do a lot more uh to be working collaboratively with this. I don't think it's recognized anywhere near as as much as it should be. The link between humans and animals, both agricultural animals as well as our companion animals is is just so important and Our contact is frequent, and so getting much more involvement from veterinarians uh, and, and thinking of even calling a vet when we have an unwell patient is something I think we could improve dramatically, actually. I think there's a lot of room for growth here.
0: So getting back a little bit to the zoonotic component, I know you see some pretty interesting zoonotic disease cases in your work as an infectious disease physician could you perhaps run through some uh, zoonotic diseases that we have to consider, perhaps in more rural areas of the country? For example, what types of zoonotic diseases do physicians think about when they're treating patients who are farmers or producers or who work in animal production settings on farms in Canada? The
1: um, things that we tend to think about with with agriculture exposure are... uh... Brucellosis and Coxiella, or Q fever, are actually not uncommon things that we might see. And as you know, these are, you know, are often acquired from consumption of unpasteurized dairy products. But another really common route is actually inhalation of un- uh, contaminated dust. And this might simply be because um, you know, sort of dried dried stuff from the soil is just blown, into, blown in through, uh, on a windy day. Um, we think of a lot of the gastrointestinal infections, uh, campylobacter, salmonella, the E. coli, particularly the sugar toxin-producing E. coli's like 0157H7. Uh, Things that I see that might be less commonly thought of are some of the lung infections. I actually saw a very pleasant patient a couple of weeks ago who, who's a chicken farmer, but he had quite a long time of progressive lung infection before it was recognized that uh, it's actually fungal infection uh, caused by histoplasmosis. this is almost certainly acquired because of inhalation of uh, dried um, uh, chicken uh, feces actually but usually just because of again uh, it ends up being uh, in the dust and inhaled that way so those are the things we would think of I, I think from the more agricultural setting there are some other examples but those would be the more common ones particularly in southern Ontario that
0: we are likely to see and that
1: we are likely to think of.
0: And how about for people who own companion animals, so dogs or cats, um, anything specific that medical doctors consider for pet owners as far as zoonotic health risks? This is actually what we are far more likely to see uh, because really...
1: At this point, the the most common contact humans have have with animals are their companion animals, and and some of the contact's extremely close. I'm sure we've all seen people now walking around with uh, dogs in backpacks or in their purses, and uh, it's very, very common that uh, people will will sleep with their pets. Uh, so, So the contact's very close. The... Gastrointestinal things are extremely, extremely common. I mean, salmonella with exposure to reptiles is, is, particularly in young children, very, as I say, common. Pet snakes, pet turtles, lizards, things like that. I actually treated two uh, young brothers a few years ago, both of whom had salmonella bacteremia. And uh, they had, this actually wasn't a pet, they had caught a garter snake and they were hiding in a box in the garden shed. Parents didn't know about this, but they kept going down to the shed and kissing the snake which, uh, well, fun for them, unfortunately, landed them both in hospital with, uh, with salmonella. We see uh, the ringworm, which got mentioned, the, the fungal infection of the skin that goes a lot between uh, humans and animals and humans and animals. The other thing that we sometimes see is actually uh, MRSA, so methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. This is usually actually... I guess more of an anthroponosis, it's normally the human, but it can certainly then be transmitted to the animal, can go back and forth and be shared, and, and eradication of the human often involves a big discussion about, about the animals and uh, what kind of contact they should have with the animals. In terms of what advice I give to people, it, it's not actually very complicated, it's a very simple one, of basic infection control prevention. People should really wash their hands after being in contact with an animal, particularly if, if there's been contact with animal secretions. Definitely wash your hands after the environment. So if you were changing a kitty litter or filling up or cleaning the food bowl or the water bowl, hands should be cleaned. We should be very aware of how intimate our, our shared environments are. So animals really should not be sleeping on the same pillow that you're sleeping on uh, because those feet have been uh, somewhere where you probably shouldn't also be putting your nose in your mouth. Uh, kitty litter I did mention about washing your hands, but also it's not, not something you should keep in a kitchen because that's where your food is. So so this kind of basically common sense advice is really all I give people. I, I am a strong advocate of people having pets. I think it's extremely important for mental health. People do very well with their animals, but just to be a little bit, just awareness, environmental awareness of of what we're doing and how we're sharing and what possible risks we're giving to each other, both animal to human as well as human to animal.
0: Dr. Parmley, do you think some of these types of diseases are also top of mind for veterinarians in practice? I guess, particularly in large animals uh, or large animal practice, what happens when a veterinarian diagnoses a disease in an animal and it's potentially zoonotic?
2: Yeah, just going to the to the first part of the question, I, I think those are some of the diseases that are also top of mind for veterinarians in practice, particularly the ones that Dr. Fulford listed for small animals and, and pets. And some of the ones she mentioned for large animals are also top of mind. We don't see a ton of zoonotic agents in our large animals, typically in, in southern Ontario or Canada, but they do happen and things like coxiella are certainly present and and things that we need to be aware of. In terms of what happens if a vet or when a veterinarian diagnoses a disease that is potentially zoonotic, one of the first steps that the veterinarian will take is to those basic biosafety protocols and and infection prevention and control, hand washing, just basic sort of common sense practices. But if the owner of the patient or the owner of the animal is worried that they may have contracted that disease, their first step really is to contact public health or their family physician. It is really important that the veterinarian recognize the boundaries in terms of practice and and that practice of human medicine is not something that's in the purview of the veterinarian. And so I think that actually is a really great opportunity to start sometimes a dialogue with the medical community when you're referring a client who is potentially concerned that they may have contracted an infectious agent to get in touch with their physician and that as a veterinarian you'd be happy to talk to that physician as well.
0: That's a really good point I think Dr. Parmley. I have to say I would be remiss if I didn't touch here on reportable diseases and how zoonosis is linked to reportable diseases. As our listeners may know, when a medical doctor or a veterinarian suspects that their patient may be infected with a certain disease based on their clinical signs, their history, and their presentation, in some cases they are required to report this to either provincial or federal authorities. We'll talk about more reportable diseases in future episodes, but for now, um, I know there are reportable diseases in both human and animal medicine, Are all reportable diseases zoonotic as well? Dr. Parmley, could you explain a bit perhaps about the veterinary side of this, and then we'll hear from Dr. Fulford.
2: Not all reportable diseases in animals are zoonotic. Many, um, especially those that affect livestock animals, are production-limiting diseases with no known ability to infect people. But that doesn't mean that they can't have detrimental effects on human health. A good example of this was the mental health impacts of the foot-and-mouth disease outbreak in the United Kingdom in 2001. This virus causes disease in several different livestock species, but not people. But the death of so many animals and the loss of livelihood for farmers negatively impacted the health of many involved in the outbreak, including farmers, veterinarians, feed companies, and many others.
0: Dr. Fulford, what would you have to say about reportable diseases from the human realm? So for us,
1: uh, many of the zoonoses that are in fact on our reportable disease list, but it's not exclusively that, probably the most significant component of the reportable disease list that we have are actually the communicable diseases that go uh, human to human. And these are things like all the sexually transmitted infections, the viral hepatitis A, B, and C, uh, any bacterial meningitis, invasive group-based streptococcal infections. And then the other uh, group of reportable diseases are the vaccine-preventable diseases. So when we actually get a case for an outbreak of something like measles or pertussis or diphtheria, that is very much... component of the reportable disease list. So we do have the zoonoses, but we also have a lot of other uh, illnesses on on the list.
0: There's also some interesting tie-ins of zoonotic diseases with people and with animals who are interacting with wildlife populations. I think likely here, there's a whole episode, a whole separate episode that would cover this topic. But since that environmental facet really gets tied in here nicely, perhaps Dr. Parmley, you could share a couple of examples just to pique our interest.
2: Absolutely. Many of the things that we look for in wild animal populations are zoonotic diseases. Many of these diseases have wild animal reservoirs, And a reservoir really is those animals or populations where the disease agents um, can commonly be found. Some of these are vector-borne diseases, those infections that can be spread by things like mosquitoes or ticks, like Lyme disease or West Nile virus. But they can also be foodborne, for example, trichinellosis in bear meat or walrus meat. Or these zoonotic agents can be spread by direct transmission from a wild animal to a person and rabies is a good example of this route of transmission. But I do really want to emphasize that wildlife are not really the environmental pillar of One Health, although they are often presented this way. (laughs) They are still animals, and as our environment changes with climate, urbanization, human population growth, how we interact with wild animals is changing, and this may present new ways and places for zoonotic disease agents to move from animals to people. Just on this point, though, I really don't want to leave you with the idea that wildlife pose only a threat to the health of people and domestic animals. I feel it's really important to emphasize that disease transmission from an animal to a person is much less likely if all populations are healthy. In other words, working to maximize the health of all humans, domestic animals, wild animals and environments will protect us from disease. And I think this is how a One Health approach can really make a difference going forward. It'll help us switch our perspective, in this case, from how wild animals can threaten human health to how better health for all can make for better human health.
1: Could I just also interject about the environment? Uh, One thing that I've become increasingly aware of is the role of climate change. And one of the most obvious ways that I'm seeing that is actually the increased uh, range that we're seeing uh, previously uh, unseen vectors in Canada. The one that probably most people are aware of is the fairly dramatic spread of the uh, black leg tick, which is the, the vector for Lyme disease. But recently, we have been starting to find uh, a mosquito, the Ides aegypta mosquito, in southern Ontario. And this is uh, a species of mosquito that we never, ever had in Canada in the past. But because of climate change, it is now overwintering. And the reason this is important to me is that this is actually the mosquito that uh, transmits most infections, uh, including things like yellow fever and dengue fever. So with the increased range of the mosquito, we may actually start to see some of these mosquito-borne arboviruses that we never uh, saw in, in the past in Canada. And this is something we are keeping a really close eye on. Is, is that uh, spread and that uh, movement of the mosquito north. So that role of the environment and our, that part of one health,
0: uh, it really infiltrates all of our health uh, in, in all sorts of ways. So with all of these zoonotic disease connections between human and animal health, what opportunities are out there for human doctors and for veterinarians to discuss some of these areas of health and disease crossover. Dr. Fulford, do you know of any resources? Well, one that I actually use all the time is a,
1: a blog that actually comes out of, out of your university from the University of Guelph, which is a worms and germs blog, because uh, it tells me a lot of what's going on in Southern Ontario and what is happening in the veterinary world. For example, uh, it was from that blog that I read about uh, an outbreak of brucella canis and puppies in the Kitchener area. And this actually was extremely interesting because we had some unwell people coming from that area and our normal serological test wouldn't have picked this up. So it was really important for us to know this and actually let our lab know so that we would actually have this in our radar for, te- for testing. So it would be nice if we were able to create some sort of a unified um, communication tool. I know infectious disease physicians are probably have access to them, but it would be super important for this to be available to the frontline physicians as well. Something that would not, as I said, I said earlier, I, I think we don't do as good a job as we could in terms of sharing the information but these are sources of information that I advertise far and wide as a really good way of finding out what's going on in the veterinary world and that what might have an impact on our patients.
0: How about you, Dr. Parmley? Do you have any resources that might be helpful for medical doctors or veterinarians when they're trying to think about these zoonotic and One Health concepts?
2: The Worms and Germs blog certainly was the first one that came to mind. I think there's many of us, too, that have Individual relationships that span those, those different disciplines between the, the medical and the veterinary worlds. And working to build th- those networks and increase collaboration and communication across those networks, I think is something that's probably each of our responsibilities. There is some work going on nationally in Canada, things like the Community for Emerging Zoonotic Disease that presents a, a venue for talking about some of these things. But I also think we need to include much more than just the human and veterinary worlds and and include some of the the community groups, the agricultural production sectors, because a lot of these diseases and the determinants that determine whether those diseases are present are things that veterinarians and physicians may be aware of, but we're not the only ones. And creating those fora for better communication across multiple disciplines, I think will be really important in the future. And there are conversations, at least at the university level, in terms of training future students, future practitioners to work across those disciplinary boundaries. But I I think it's something that will take quite a lot of time. So
0: what would be some good ways for producers or animal owners to learn more about which zoonotic diseases they should have on their radar? Dr. Parmley?
2: I think the first step is to talk to their veterinarian. There is some Good online resources from different provincial ministries, uh, from the federal government, from some of the surveillance networks. But I do believe that the best advice is local. Threats are different in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. And your veterinarian is a really great first step to ask those questions and to get a little bit more information, as is your local family doctor.
0: Dr. Fulford, would you have any suggestions for producers or pet animal owners as to where they might find more information about zoonotic diseases?
1: I completely agree with what was already mentioned. One thing I sometimes also refer um, my patients to, particularly if they're getting a slightly more exotic pet, is actually the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. The CDC has some very good information pages on zoonoses and particularly with certain pets. Uh, but I do also make sure that if somebody's getting an animal, because again, my my contact is most likely going to be with people who have uh, who have pets, is I do make sure that they actually have a vet because it, it's a little bit uh, surprising to me how sometimes people get a, get an animal and don't really consider the ramifications of, of animal ownership. So that is a huge source of information, I think as well as is
0: that information from the vet. I do think that's a great starting point if medical doctors and veterinarians can perhaps take that little bit of extra time just to connect with their clients and to ensure that their clients are also having some discussions about the care of their family members, being those human family members or furry family members um, or their livestock, just to start developing some of those One Health connections when we're treating some of these zoonotic diseases. I think that would be a great start. I'd like to thank you both for joining me today. I know this is quite a broad topic to attempt to discuss zoonotic diseases and One Health approaches to both veterinary and human medicine, but I really appreciate you taking the time out from your busy schedules. Thanks so much, Dr. Parmley and to Dr. Fulford for for sharing your insights with us today. Once again, I'd like to thank the Canadian Animal Health Surveillance System for their support of the Animal Health Insights podcast. CAS is an initiative of the National Farmed Animal Health and Welfare Council and it has broad-based support from both livestock sectors and from government. CAS brings together data and information from across Canada in order to demonstrate animal health and to guide planning on national animal health priorities. Effective disease surveillance can demonstrate the health of our animals and it enables prompt action to minimize the negative impacts of disease. Funding is provided through the Agri Assurance Program under the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, a federal, provincial, territorial initiative.